Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. When a doctor named Jerry got his first smartphone several years back, he loved it, and he had this to say about it. Being able to send an email, look up a fact, or buy something no matter where I was meant a previously unimaginable gain in productivity. Every time I got an email, he said, the phone emitted a ping and I would deal with whatever it was, priding myself on my efficiency. He handled text messages with similar immediacy. Jerry wasn't worried about becoming addicted to or distracted by his phone. I'd always prided myself on my willpower, he said. Like most people who've made it through medical training, with its early mornings and its long shifts when your friends are partying, I had established a track record of delaying gratification. But as it turned out for Jerry, none of that mattered. Soon, he said, I was reaching for the device every time it made a sound, like Pavlov's dog salivating when it heard a bell. This started to interfere with work and conversations. The machine had seemed like a miraculous servant, but gradually I became its slave. Switching the phone to silent or turning off email didn't help. He still yearned to look at it. For the first time, he said, I could imagine what it's like to be a smoker craving a cigarette. Checking the smartphone had become a bad habit I couldn't break. I appreciated reading about Dr. Jerome Groupman's struggles, which he shared in a recent essay in the New Yorker magazine. That's because our assembly theme this month at FUS is attention. For the vast majority of human history, our attention was something we gave to those right in front of us. Attention was for genuine learning, for listening to one another face to face and improving our understanding of each other, the kind of attention we heard about in our poem. Attention was also for noticing berries or mastodons that we might like to eat and for noticing predators that might like to eat us. But in our current human reality, attention is something very different. It's something that's being manipulated, carved into thousands of pieces, and sold with dramatic consequences for individuals and societies around the world. So I want to talk about how our attention is a precious resource, one that is priceless and limited and worth protecting. Before I go on, I want to acknowledge that, for better and worse, Smartphones and apps and social media megacorporations are not going away anytime soon. And the technological advances themselves are neutral and amoral. So I will not stand before you thundering like the ministers of old, raging against the sins of all that is newfangled, demanding confessions and atonement. That would be fun, but... <laughs> but fire and brimstone are not where we need to go. I think it's much more important to look at the value of paying close attention to what we give our attention to, and to figure out how we might respond in ways consistent with our personal principles and our collective aspirations. So let's start with some science. We like science around here. Elizabeth Dunn is a psychologist at the University of British Columbia. She studies the relationship between mobile technology and well-being. 
Having the entire store of human knowledge at our fingertips is pretty useful, she says, on the website of the American Psychological Association. But mobile technology also has the power to diminish our health and happiness. Our lab has gone looking for pros, she says, but in general we keep finding cons. One of the big cons is that human beings are not made for this kind of continuous stimulation. We didn't evolve to be constantly battered by notifications, Dr. Dunn says. In smartphones, we've totally changed the way we do everything. She points out that these huge changes to what we ask of our brains have occurred in barely a decade versus hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution. It's not just the frequency of communication that disregards evolution. It's the volume of relationships we are being asked to engage in. A science article from Harvard's website offers this. Though humans have evolved to be social, a key feature to our success as a species, the social, the social structures in which we thrive tend to contain about 150 individuals. This number is orders of magnitude smaller than the two billion potential connections we carry around in our pockets today. This technology that you and I have in our hands is asking too much of our magnificent yet finite primate brains. The problem, as you may know, is the continual release of a feel-good brain chemical called dopamine. Discovered in the late 1950s, dopamine is released in response to positive stimuli. Here's how that Harvard article describes it. Although not as intense as a hit of cocaine, positive social stimuli will similarly result in a release of dopamine, reinforcing whatever behavior preceded it. Cognitive neuroscientists have shown that rewarding social stimuli, laughing faces, positive recognition by our peers, messages from loved ones, activate the same dopamine reward pathways. Smartphones have provided us with a virtually unlimited supply of social stimuli, both positive and negative. Every notification has the potential to be a positive social stimulus and dopamine influx. So because many of us are now awash in what is in effect a powerful drug, scientists are see, seeing all kinds of addiction-like behaviors and emotional consequences. In just one of the many studies, research subjects who use their phones almost constantly in daily life were found to show, were found to show significant symptoms of anxiety after being separated from their phones for just 10 minutes. It was just in the other room, in the lab. It wasn't even lost. <laughs> this kind of anxiety is in part because of the power of intermittent positive reinforcement. Do you remember that one if you took a psychology class? No human being would be interested in a slot machine that gave out money at predictable intervals. That's why social media keeps things randomized and unpredictable, so that we respond in an elevated way. Our phones stimulate us on an, on an irregular schedule, too. The almost supernatural power of random reinforcements was first explored in the 1930s with B.F. Skinner's famous experiments on mice. Here's another quote from that Harvard article. Humans are no different from the mice. If we perceive a reward to be delivered at random, and if checking for the reward comes at little cost, we end up checking habitually. If you pay attention, you might find yourself checking your phone at the slightest feeling of boredom, purely out of habit. Programmers work very hard behind the screens to keep you doing exactly that. End of quote. Well, why would they do something like that, like that you might ask? The report continues. 
Because most social media platforms are free, they rely on revenue from advertisers to make a profit. This system has created an arms race for your attention and time. Ultimately, the winners of the arms race will be those who best use their product to exploit the features of the brain's reward systems. Most of us in this room have consented in some way to participate in this exploitation, this grand, unregulated, worldwide mental health experiment. We've perhaps consented by clicking a button that says, I have read and agree to the terms of service. <laughs> UUs and humanists don't actually have confessionals, but if not reading the terms of service were a sin that required confessing, <laughs> I suspect we'd have a long line. I would be in it. As the librarian at my seminary put it, if a product is free, you are the product. Social media and Google and Apple pay attention to every bit of data we, data we freely give them and they try to monetize it all. And because our collective data is worth billions, they try to keep your attention for as many minutes of the day as they can. When I reluctantly got my first smartphone, I had no illusions that I would have superior willpower. That's because I couldn't possibly have counted the number of hours I'd spent in my 30s chatting with people on the internet. The rewards were sometimes clear. Online was where I connected with old friends around the world, and I made new friends, including the man who is now my life partner. But often the rewards were quite intermittent, frequently leaving me in a dopamine haze, searching my, cons my computer screen for the next hit, and wondering where the hours went. Having the equivalent of a digital slot machine on my desk had been bad enough. Now it was supposed to come with me everywhere in my pocket on a phone? This did not seem like a good idea. And if I could be reached by email anywhere at any time, how exactly would my workday ever end? But I am not a Luddite, so I got the smartphone. Like Dr. Jerry Groupman, I have embraced the good. I love having a camera available to me at all times. The mapping function is brilliantly helpful. And having the entire New York Times and Washington Post in this tiny little package is very handy for a former journalist and lifelong news junkie. I've also tried with mixed success to minimize the bad. For example, my phone only makes noise when I get a text or a call, not when I get an email or a Facebook message. So my life is not a constant barrage of pings. Also, I prefer to have a smaller smartphone because it fits in my pocket. The added benefit is that the small size of the screen, combined with my somewhat chunky, clumsy thumbs, means any kind of messaging or chat is slow and unpleasant for me. This keeps me eager to be done with it. I still spend more time looking at my phone than I'd like, and there are still plenty of distractions on my laptop, but it could be worse. And of course, the tech companies would love it if it were worse, because worse for us is better for them and for their profits. So even without access to a confessional, a few former tech executives are starting to come clean about just how dirty their business can be. Sean Parker, Facebook's founding president, has explained that the original goal of Facebook was not to connect people to each other, but rather this. How do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? They specifically knew about dopamine. It's a social validation feedback loop, Parker says, exactly the kind of thing a hacker like myself would come up with, because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. 
God only knows, he says, what it's doing to our children's brains. These guys remind me of a tobacco executive who doesn't smoke. It turns out some of them go to great lengths to avoid technology themselves to protect their own brains and the brains of their kids. Another former Facebook executive, the one who invented the like button, has a parental control feature on his own smartphone to prevent him from downloading apps for himself. And one Silicon, Silicon Valley consultant who advises firms on how best to manipulate their customers has acknowledged that the internet router in his home automatically shuts down at the same time every day so his family is forced to take a break from the very situations he creates. We are actually starting to see something of a reverse digital divide, where better-off parents are stealing their smallest kids away from screens, while less well-off parents, fearful of their children being left behind technologically, are embracing the screens being handed out in many public schools. There is some serious hypocrisy and there are some serious ethical chasms at the intersection of technology and greed. The stirrings of conscience that we're seeing, while more than a bit tardy, are a hopeful sign. Shamath Palihapitiya, a Facebook former vice president of user growth, has spoken about living with, quote, tremendous guilt for what he has created and done. He still believes that Facebook overwhelmingly does good in the world, but he sees the daunting downsides. It literally is a point now where I think we have created tools that are ripping apart the social fabric of how society works, he says. That is truly where we are, he goes on to say. The short-term, dopamine-driven feedback loops that we have created are destroying how society works. No civil discourse, no cooperation, misinformation, mistruth. And it's not an American problem. This is not about Russian ads, he says. This is a global problem. I would say it is also about Russian ads, but yes, we have a global problem where democracies are increasingly fragile and where truth and reality are getting lost in the noise because noise is more profitable. Digital technologies are turning out to be like so many other technologies, so many other technologies before them. Two-sided, double-edged, good and bad. The invention of air travel has brought together the people of the world like never before, and Airplanes have been incredibly useful for waging war. Motor vehicles got horse poop off our streets, expanded relationships and employment opportunities, and improved the transport of essential goods. And globally, motor vehicles kill 1.3 million people a year. And planes and cars both contribute mightily to climate change. Today's digital technologies let me see what my niece did in school last week inform me when people I care about are sick or in need, and provide support and great ideas for my ministry. And these technologies may help bring about the end of functional democracy. As a certain website might say, it's complicated. But our primate brains, can, but our primate brains I'm sure, can grasp this com complexity and ambiguity. The question is, what can we do? I think the first step is for us to pay, each of us, to pay attention to our attention, to be mindful and aware of what is happening around us and to us. Take note of whether you're one of the people who touches their phone 2,000 times a day. This is actually very common, 2,000 times a day. And take note of what trade-offs might be involved. Think about the last time it was, as we heard in our poem, that you listened carefully in person 
with your eyes open to someone else. Think about the last time someone listened to you that way. It may be a both and. Maybe you have good and close in-person relationships and your fingers touch your phone 2,000 times a day. It is not impossible, but it's worth taking stock to see where your attention is going. Another thing to do is to pay attention to words, particularly words whose meanings are being co-opted in the name of greed. For example, if you are on Facebook, most of what appears in your news feed is not actually news. Most of the people whom Facebook calls friends are unlikely to be real friends, especially if you have more than 150. To remind myself of these Orwellian attempts at redefinition, I make a point to refer to Facebook friends or friends on Facebook to distinguish them from the deeper relationships that are central to my real life. I also refer to it as my Facebook feed, not a news feed. And the word feed itself is worth paying attention to. You are not choosing what to consume. You are being fed. Another thing about attention is it's not only corporations that want to manipulate your attention. There are authoritarian leaders in our country working hard right now to do the same thing. The constant barrage is intentional. Exhaustion and overload are part of the strategy, with dramatic events occurring every day, all day. This is to keep you distracted and increasingly numb. It's important not to bury your head in the sand right now, but there are ways to stay informed that might be easier on your primate brain. For example, I may be a news junkie, but I do not have a single news notification come to my phone. I decide when to look at the news. You can even opt to catch the news all at once <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of the day, like back in the decades when evening newspapers and nightly news on TV were the main thing. For those who are interested, I'll include a couple of my favorite news summarizers along with sources for this talk in the PDF that we post on our website. Beyond taking care of ourselves, we also need to take a stand for democracy, truth, and the rule of law. One way to do that is to support officials who believe in regulation. Airplanes and cars used to be much less safe than they are now. What changed was regulation. Guided by experts in safety and supported by a valuing of human lives over profits. Since many tech billionaires only seem to discover ethics after they retire, how about we help them do it earlier? They will not starve. <coughs> there are more airplanes and cars than ever, and a more regulated tech sector will not vanish. If they try to argue that industries can regulate themselves, I say we offer them a ride on a Boeing 737 MAX. <laughs> Greed is a natural human urge, but it needs to be constrained. To do that in an era of corporate personhood, it's important to elect those who think that democracy exists to serve as a shared expression of our values, and that government is sometimes the best vehicle for making people's lives and health better. This seems like a good moment to mention that the next Minnesota election is March 3rd, and the next national election is just 51 weeks away. It's going to be a very messy year, and social media is unlikely to make it better. I encourage you to make a plan and do what you can to get involved to help bring about outcomes that are in line with your values. Getting yourself to the polls is essential, but it's not enough. Social media reminded me of that very fact just the other day. 
with a headline reading, Facebook cares about you and your memories. <laughs> I was shown a picture of my partner and me wearing our I Voted stickers and smiling early on election day in 2016. Simply voting wasn't enough to bring about the world we want to live in. Liking and sharing things on social media wasn't enough to bring about the world we want to live in. Despite the cloying reminders, the truth is that Facebook and other tech giants do not care about me or you or our country except as venues to make money. That's why we would do well to be mindful of where our habits lead. That's why we should be as careful as we can with our attention and focus it where it will do the most good. So let's have this. More social, less media. More smart, less phone. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.